yeah, I love this place. And uh, I love this place because um, this is a, a church, the church that gathers here, and I'm sure it's this, the same for all of you that have gathered, whether you're from this church or not. But I love coming here on a Sunday because it's a church that honours the Word and that honours the Holy Spirit. And uh, we need to honour both. And what a wonderful song we uh, sang there, a song of worship. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And uh, I hope that's true. I hope that's true of me. And I hope it's true of uh, you. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to read just a, a couple of short uh, passages from the Scriptures. Uh, first of all, we're going to read from John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I almost preached in Luke 10. It's as well I didn't, uh, because uh, that's the one that Robert chose to uh, preach from and preach from so uh, wonderfully. So John chapter 4, uh, this is a, a Bible that I, I grabbed because I left my, I left my, the, the Bible I usually use up in Stornoway. I've just come down a few days ago from Stornoway and that's why I need my glasses as well. I was looking through there in the bookshelves to see if you had a big print Bible, but you don't have a big print Bible, so uh, hence the glasses. So John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which means drunkenness near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then we know the conversation that actually happens. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, I don't think they dared ask, no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And now another reading from Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, you know that the parable we're going to read from it's the sheep and the, the goats. And for the sake of time, you know, there's a great division. And uh, in verse 34, we read these words. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. So not everybody's healed. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go to visit you? 
The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And of course, there then follows later on, in as much as you did it not, you did it not unto me. You know, it's been lovely catching up with uh, many of you here, and uh, I've known some of you for many years from uh, different places, and well done that you're still in the road. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking, I don't know what the average age is here, but it must be pretty high. <laughs> and uh, I was just thinking of the story of the labourers in the vineyard. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? And uh, there's the, the owner of the vineyard, and he goes out first thing in the morning, and he hires some men. He goes out the third hour of the day, the, the, is it the sixth hour? I can't remember exactly, it's in Matthew 20. And then he goes out at the eleventh hour, just an hour before knocking off time. <laughs> who, who do you think were the ones hanging around then? They'd be all the old guys. <laughs> you know, Spurgeon says, isn't it wonderful to know? that God still has worked for old men with old bodies. And it's wonderfully true. And I hope you know that. That even though some of us might be getting on in age. And you know, I'm in my mid-60s. I'm getting to that age and stage. And some of you are further down this road. When you meet one another, you start talking about the last time you got a stent put in. <laughs> you know, you got a hospital appointment in you know, a month to get a scan for something or other. And, and that's the agent stage most of us are at. But isn't it just absolutely wonderful? Oh, I'm out of view. Isn't it absolutely wonderful to know that even at the 11th hour stage of our lives, it's not only not too late for repentance, but it's not too late for usefulness either. And so it's wonderful to be with you and it's wonderful to be with folk that have been on the, the road for a long time. Uh, Andy said, just um, in introducing the whole thing, that the last conference was three years ago. It's hard to imagine. And uh, actually, I was at that last conference, and uh, David Robertson was the other speaker. And uh, David can probably find fault in just about anything that he looks at. <laughs> but it was wonderful that he actually wrote about this conference back in 2019. He said that here he saw signs of green shoots. And isn't that lovely, just that he saw that and acknowledged that here was something that God was doing as he drew together his people from different uh, churches just to be together in fellowship and worship him and sit under his word and so on. I think he was absolutely right. But you know, the three years since have been a time of decimation. I think we have to face the darkness of the days that we're in. It's been a time of decimation for the Church of Jesus Christ. Three years ago, there would have been at least 50 or 60% more people here. Friends, it's the same in just about every congregation in the land. Congregations are down by about 50 or 60%. These are difficult days for the Church. I, I can't really explain that. Yes, maybe folk are still getting involved in services online, but for some reason, I, I'm in Stornoway now helping out at a church there, and even folk that you would never have predicted 
would not come back to church when the time was possible to do that. They're still not back. And you're wondering, where are they? I think it is that just as the Bible says, we're actually living in times of stress. These are times of great tiredness. These are times of great anxiety. According to the, the news last night, 80% of people are anxious about the cost of living. And that comes hot on the heels of all that was involved in COVID and all the anxiety of that and the fear of that and the interruptions of that, that caused and, and so on and so forth. So these are dark days, but not only dark days in terms of stress, they're dark days in terms of confusion. Now, I'm not political in any narrow sense, but it's pretty disturbing that the government of Westminster or the Prime Minister, he, he seems to think it's okay to rip up the rules. As I say, I'm not narrowly political, but I am concerned at what's happening to families and in schools through the Scottish Government in Holyrood. Do you know that Norfolk and Suffolk uh, Police Force, I know I'm going south of the border again, when it comes to gender issues, do you know how many gender issues they can choose between anybody that's being arrested or whatever? Not just two or three. 67. 67 possible different genders. I mean, the mind boggles. So we're living in dark days of stress, but we're also living in dark days of confusion. But you know, isn't it precisely there in the midst of very dark days? These are times of opportunity as well. They really are times of opportunity to show the light of Christ, to show the love of God to people who are in distress. And I was having a look at the, the title for today and it it really is about how do we help people? How do we actually help people who are in a place of distress? And it's with that in mind that I thought we would read from John chapter 4, and that's the one that I, I want to concentrate for the, the main, in, in what I, I hope will maybe be practical uh, stroke outlook help in order to help people. It was wonderful just to, to hear the story of the Good Samaritan again and just to know how Jesus, he brings about this twist at the end, doesn't he? You know, who is my neighbour? But at the end, who was a neighbour too? And isn't it lovely? I mean, the stories that we heard from Andy I'm one of these weird charismatics and, and I go by the physical anointing of God as to what God wants to draw attention to. And he drew attention very much to the stories of Andy's encounters with these people. But here was a man he didn't know. But the issue wasn't was that man a neighbour to him. 
The issue was that Andy was unable to love man. And God calls us. Who then was our neighbour too? And basically we're to be a neighbour with anybody that God brings across our path who might be in need of the light and the love of God. You know, I, I just love this story in John chapter 4. And there, there's so many pointers that I want to draw to your attention. Uh, first of all, we read that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Actually, he didn't have to go through Samaria. There was other routes to get from the A that he was to the B he was wanting to go to, other than going through this town. So what does that tell me about wanting to help people? It tells me we need to be open to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. That's true. Amen. You know, back in 2019, I spoke at a conference with R.T. Kendall up in Stornoway, and he described the Bible as the Holy Spirit's finest product. But he was at pains to stress this, and he's one of the best Bible teachers in the world. He said the Bible was not meant to replace our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's his finest product. And we couldn't live without it. But it's not meant to be a replacement for the Holy Spirit. We're meant to have a living relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And part of that, when we sort of narrow it down to the theme we're thinking of this morning is that the Holy Spirit is willing to give us nudges. If in all our ways we acknowledge Him, He will direct our paths. And even though we're not aware of it, Andy was being directed to take that walk at the point he took it in order to meet that man. Now I learned this very early on in my, my ministry. I began my ministry in two of the outer islands in, in Orkney. And uh, I went there to school my theological degree and you know six years of, of study and assistantships and so on. And 1982 an assistantship in Linlithgow, so I've been a minister now for 40 years. And 1984, I went to two of these outer islands in Stormsea. I was no sooner on the island, my car lifted up in a net onto the island of Stormsea. And I was driving past the house, and the Lord said, go in and speak to the person who lives in that house. And I said, Lord, I can't do that. I don't know the man. It's a bit odd if I just go to a house that I don't know and knock on the door. And I didn't do it. The next morning that day I was driving past the house again and the Lord said to me in my spirit, he said, go in and speak to the person who lives there. I said, Lord, I can't, I'm too shy, you know, the way I am about personality, I can't do that. Third day, go and speak to that man. I didn't do it. The fourth day they fished his body out from the sea. I learned the hard way. 
And, and I believe I've been forgiven. I, I, I'm, I'm not beating myself up over that. But I had to come before the Lord. And I had to say to him, you know, my training in preaching the word of God is not enough to pastor people. Teach me to be open to the nudges of your spirit. And have I got it right every time after that? Certainly not. But more often than I count, I've just had this feeling, I have to go to this place or this person. And I don't know why. Why was Jesus directed to this person? There would have been thousands of people needing his help, needing his truth, needing his love. But on this day, he was directed to this person. <coughs> so that's the first thing I find here. And we've only really got about 15 minutes. But I've laid that as a principle before you. It's a good prayer. Because we've all got the Holy Spirit in us as believers. It's a good prayer to say, Lord, would you sensitize me Amen. to the voice of your Spirit? What else do I find here, just as a clue in John chapter 4, if we want to help those in need and as we look to Jesus for clues about how to do that, I find that he didn't have a formula for this lady. You know, I was reading on Facebook and it was being quoted with, with great favour that uh, somebody had been at a a talk on evangelism and leading people to faith and the model that had been presented is one that I use actually and it's A, B, C, D. A is for something to admit that I've sinned. B is for believe that I can't be the answer to my sin but Jesus was wounded on the cross for my transgressions. C is for counting the cost. Am I willing to receive this Jesus and follow him? And D is for do, something to do, ask him in. And, and that's not a bad sort of ABCD to keep in mind. And I've used that, and I've used it on occasion in sermons, at the end of sermons, and so on. But Jesus does not deal with a preset formula with people. There's none of that in this story in John chapter 4. And I think that really matters. His interest in this lady was genuine. And he listens to what she has to say. A point that, that Robert drew out. And you know, I've read commentaries on this story, various commentaries on John chapter 4, and I don't quite get it because they're harsh in the way that they speak about this lady. As she talks about Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem, as she says, well, the Jews say this and, you know, we Samaritans say that. 
The, the commentaries say that she was trying to be evasive. Friend, there's none of that in the text. Jesus simply listened to the woman. He didn't impose. He listened. And he followed it through. And he interwove what he had to say into a genuine listening to her confusion to all that was going on in her heart. I, I find the same harshness. I think I maybe spoke about this when I was last here a few weeks ago at the men's meeting. I, I find the same harshness. You know that story of the man who had been ill for 38 years and Jesus says, do you want to be well? And, and the commentaries, again, they seem to bring a harshness into this. Oh, this man had been ill for 38 years, and the point is that if he'd been healed, he would have to get up, and he would have to get a job, and he would have to pick up his responsibilities. So that's why Jesus is drilling into this man's sincerity. Do you really want the responsibilities that would come with being well? There's nothing of that in the text. It was the offer of hope to this man. He'd been ill for 38 years. He couldn't get into the pool. We're not told how many times a year, if once a year, that the, the pool was troubled. In all the years he'd been there, he'd not managed to get in. Jesus is offering help and he's offering hope. I think if we want to help people, we need to get rid of our evangelical formulas. And we need to draw near as human being to human being. I think I've shared at Moody's Burn Church when I first went to Wester Hills in Edinburgh, it was so totally out of my context, my middle class upbringing and so on. But I knew God had called me there and I really felt like a fish out of water. And there was one Sunday where I just was on holiday and I went a, a walk into the centre of the city on Sunday evening. And uh, I'll, I'll not tell you where, but there was a church coming out of their evening service. And as they come out of the evening service, they all turned their back against the crowds that were walking past, who were on their way to the festival. And thinking of myself as an outsider for a moment, the, the, the feeling I had as I walked past was, whatever happened in there is nothing to do with me. And actually, whatever happened in there, these people that are gathered in there, they don't actually want anything to do with me. They're not interested in me. They were all dressed in black. They looked miserable. The crowds looked happy. They were enjoying the wonderful summer evening. They were on the way to the festival. Now, please don't get into the Broadway and the narrow way. That's missing the point. 
I just felt whatever has happened in that building has absolutely no connection with with where I am or living my life. And something went off in me. Kenny, that's why I brought you to Wesker Hills. I want you to make the face of God human. So what did making the face of God human mean? It meant that when somebody arrived at the church 10 minutes before the service with their face black and blue from being beaten up by their partner, you sat and talked with them for 10 minutes and you delayed the service. It meant when you realised that half the children in Western Hills could not go to school in the winter because they didn't have clothes. That you did something about that. It was respecting the story and meeting without judgment and meeting it with genuine care. This woman had received nothing but judgment. The Samaritans were a despised race. Do you remember me saying that the town she lived in, in some, uh, 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 amongst the Samaritans, it got the name Sychar, which means drunkenness. So it was a despised town and a despised race. She was a despised person in that despised town in the middle of a despised race. So much so that she was coming at the hottest part of the day to draw water where she wouldn't meet anybody else. Neat has a way of making people feel ashamed. And we need to show that in the presence of the God we know and want to bring to you, there's no need to feel ashamed of need. He actually wants to help you. And something happens in that context. Just before I left Stornoway to come down here, I met a man in the street, he's the latest convert at Martin's Memorial, the, the church that I'm helping out in at the moment. And he was drawn through Celebrate Recovery. And this is what he said. And it turns the tables around in what is normally said about the church. He said, when I walked in to Celebrate Recovery, I found I'd walked into an atmosphere of no judgmentalism. He said, the secular organisations that are trying to help me, they are full of oughts and shoots and mass, and I just feel judged when I go through their doors. And I don't feel that when I come around celebrate recovery. And because of that experience, 
He came to know Jesus and stayed behind at the end of a service to ask, how could he notice Jesus, whose love he'd begun to see and experience? What else did I find here in John chapter 4? I, I find this, that if we want to help people, that this is an odd thing. We, we need to show that we are vulnerable and we need help as well. Yeah. That we're not helping from a place of superiority. As my brother shouted out there, Jesus sat down. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was weary from the journey. And the woman comes along. What does he say? Give me a drink. I think too often the church approaches people as knowing it all and not from a place of weakness. There's something here about giving dignity to people who are in need. That despite their need and despite the devastation they may be experiencing in their lives, they are actually a worthwhile person with something to contribute to the life of the world. Going back to that story that I mentioned offhand, uh, the story of the labourers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20, there's something about the heart of the vineyard owner. He doesn't send his steward to hire these workers. He goes himself. He, he wants these people to encounter himself. And the, the thing is this, that those who were hired at the 11th hour, he gave those, he promised those he hired at the start of the day a living wage actually. But what he agreed to pay was the living wage for the day and was sufficient for a man and his family. And imagine the pride of these early hired workers going home and putting food on the table for their wife and their family. Friends, he gave the same dignity to those hired at the last hour. So that those who weren't as capable, who weren't as fit, they would go home with a living wage and they'd be able to put food on the table for their family. Jesus cares about human dignity. He did not give them charity. He taught them there was something that they could contribute. For which they would get a reward, a living wage. And they would feel the dignity. If we want people to feel dignity in their need, we need to be showing we're vulnerable too. We're not coming simply to give, give, give as though all you can do is receive. We're saying to you that as human beings we're all needy. And we all need help. 
and we can all offer help, no matter how distressing our life may be. When I went to Wester Hills, I remember my first Remembrance Sunday, and uh, I'd forgotten my coffee. And in Church of Scotland circles, that's a big no-no, you know, to forget your coffee on Remembrance Sunday. And I'd forgotten my coffee. One of the poorest members of, of the congregation, she'd been in the papers, did I share this at the men's group, maybe? She'd been in the papers before she had contacted the church, down in the, the pavement, licking methadone off the pavement and her child watching on. She came to the church, she even started coming to the prayer meeting before the service. Our wee girl that was in the picture, watching her mum licking methadone off the pavement. A few weeks later, she was sitting on my knee in the prayer meeting before the service, dipping her digestive biscuit in my tea. This same lady, she said to me, Kenny, I want to give you my coffee. Can you imagine how that made her feel, being able to do that? It gave her a sense of worth. It gave her a sense of dignity. There's something I can contribute. To the life of people. There's another time I was going out to pick up my wife uh, from hostel. She was having an operation in her feet, and we were sitting at cafe, at cafe church as we called it, and and I was surrounded by these folk who were addicts, and and, and we were just talking about the Bible, and I got up to go and say I need to go and pick up my wife, and one of them said. Kenny, are you going away without prayer? He said, sit down and we'll pray for you. And we'll pray for your wife. They felt they had something to offer. Even in the midst of all their struggles. So that's another clue that I, I find here. Be open to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. Listen respectfully to the story without harsh judgment. Don't just think that you're the one who's got the strength and they're the person who is weak. Help them to see they've got something to contribute to you and to the life of the world. First time I was ever involved in deliverance as a pastor. Nobody had taught me in my training in church of Scotland what to do. But a demon started to speak through a woman in a man's voice and there was all the neck turning and the slit eyes and all that type of stuff. And then I heard that the Spirit of God say, tell this person she is the gift of God to the life of the world. In other words, she had purpose. And when I said that, the demon within her just went ballistic and contested this woman's worth. 
No, she's not. No, she's not. She's painted and, and out came this torrid abuse and condemnation of the women's past. And I said, no, she's not. And I said to the woman, you are the gift of God to us and to the life of the world around you. Demon left. And she collapsed across the table and started to speak in tongues. She needed to hear despite all the shame of my life, I am still a worthwhile person. There's something to contribute. And the last thing I want to say is this. The disciples saw what was happening. And in time to come, what they saw was one of the contributing factors. Why they changed from being people who wanted to call down fire to destroy Samaritan villages. <coughs> to actually being used to take the gospel to Samaria. And that leads me to say this, in, in this business of caring, it's so easy to get burnt out. There's need all around. Remember seeing J. John, a wonderful evangelist, you know, acting out. You don't have to look for unbelievers. They're everywhere. You know, when he, he acted out walking across the stage, looking behind the piano and looking behind the, the, the lectern. You know, is there any unbelievers here? Is there any unbelievers? They're everywhere. Friends, human need is everywhere. And we really, really need to remember. But when I was a young minister, I said to my wife before I got married, you know what, I really just want to burn out for God. I, I don't want that any longer. I want to burn as long as possible for God. Because I'm going to help people more the longer I live. Jesus was drawing others into his way of operating. He was letting them see it. And they saw it. And they didn't say anything. But they saw it. And eventually it took root. It's a very interesting thing, the story of the, the Good Samaritan that I almost preached on. We read about the priest and the Levite and Ken Bailey, who's got some wonderful books where he explains the Bible against the setting of sort of Eastern, Middle Eastern culture because he'd lived and served there for 40 years. He, he explains this like this, that the priests who were part of a wealthy class, he, he was on his way home to Jericho having performed his two weeks duties. And we heard a wee bit about this this morning. And he just wanted to get home and if he'd stopped and helped a man who might have been dead, then he would have had to go back to Jerusalem and go through all sorts of ceremonies to become clean again. And it would delay his going home to his family. 
when God brings need across, it's not always convenient. But then the Levite comes along, and this is the interesting insight of Ken Bailey, that he was probably, because this is the way it could work, he was probably the priest's personal Levite and assistant. He didn't have a donkey, he was walking behind, so he wasn't as wealthy, and he came across the man a wee while later. And he thought to himself, well, my boss has passed him by, there must be a reason. So I better pass him by too. T two things. This business about caring, it has to come from the top in a church. Leaders need to embody it. And if leaders aren't embodying it, it's not part of a church vision as being right up there at the top, then you can't expect the church to follow. Jesus modelled God's way and the disciples noticed. Friends, there's so much need. It needs to begin at the top. It needs to be spoken about from the pulpit. It needs to be a high value. And then it needs to be embraced by the Levites, as it were, by everybody else. It's a whole church thing. Because the need is so great. And I think because of the time, that's, that's really where I wanted to leave it. And I would really encourage you in your churches wherever that this needs to get to the leadership. It needs to get to the top of the agenda. I, I wonder if there's any place at all in a world of increasing stress for churches that don't make the love of God human. And the face of God human. I think they're going to become completely irrelevant. Because how can the blessing of God rest upon a church that hasn't clothed Jesus, that hasn't given him water to drink, that hasn't visited him when he was ill or sick or in prison? Such behaviour is going to come under judgment at the end of time. I think it's coming under judgment now. Judgment begins with the household of God. The pandemic and the decimation of the church in America might be the biggest opportunity we have to present to God as congregations, as believers, as fellowship, a blank page. And to say we're not going to go back to the way it was before. Praise the Lord. Show us what it looks like to truly be the church of Jesus Christ. I was thinking the other day, what would it be like? If, imagine you'd never heard anything in the Bible. What would it be like 
and you don't know anything about Christmas, what would it be like if we just found the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And all we had was Jesus. What would church look like if we truly followed him? Well, I'll end with this. Forgive me for taking two more minutes. This is what Aristides, the philosopher, said to Emperor Hadrian, who was emperor from 117 to 138. And he wasn't a Christian Aristides. He was a, a pagan philosopher as it were. This is what he said, says, explaining Christianity to the emperor. Christians love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would harm them. If one of them has something, he gives freely to the one who has nothing without boasting. If they see a stranger, Christians take them home and are happy as though they were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of their Redeemer, they all give what he needs as if, and if it is possible, they redeem him and set him free. And if there are any among them that are poor or naked, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy, and they do not declare in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that none should take notice of them. This is a new people, and there's something divine in that. Aristides, who wrote that, became a Christian. Because of what he saw. And what he saw looks to me like Jesus. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm getting older, I'm in my mid 60s. You know, I, I, I've just decided, you know, I've, I made a decision, I made it a few years ago. I don't want anything to do with any church activity that doesn't look like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It doesn't look like that. I've got less years ahead of me than behind me. I don't want to waste my time. And anything that doesn't look like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It doesn't look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, smell like Jesus. I don't want to be part of it. What do you do practically? You just get up in the morning and you say, Lord, direct my steps. And you trust him in faith to do that. And so in one morning, the story of last week, I met a needy pastor who was at the point of giving up. I met a teenage girl whose life has been destroyed by the nastiness and viciousness of her father. I got a message from somebody whose marriage was breaking up. You just step out the door and you say, Holy Spirit, 
maybe I'll tend her to your magics. And Jesus, I want to look like you. I just want to walk about looking like you. And I want to be in fellowship of your people so I don't get worn out. I'm not the body, I'm just part of it. <coughs> but I want people to see who you really are. That you love, that you care, that you're interested in their stories. Despite all they're going through, you want to restore them to their dignity as human beings. And I want to be part of a church that's like that. So Father, I just pray for anything that's for us. It won't go by us from what we've heard today. None of, not all of it will be for everyone. So what you particularly want us to hear, may we hear, may it go into good soil in our hearts, may it not be snatched away. May it be fruitful to your glory. 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold as you choose. And I believe, Lord, we've been speaking, praying, thinking, hoping for your glory. And we ask it for your glory, the glory of the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.